Well, stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning. And you'll find it in the Gospel of John chapter 3 as we look at the first 15 verses together this morning. And if you need the, God, the copy of God's Word in front of you, you can find a chairback Bible and this morning's text on page 887. And what we have before us this morning is the first part of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus on a night in Jerusalem from verse 1 through verse 15. So let me read that very text for us, and and then I'll I'll pray that God blesses our study and we'll begin together. So listen as the Lord does speak to you uh, once again through His perfect and powerful Word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray again. Father, we ask that your steadfast love would come to us this day, that you would bring us salvation according to your promise. Lord, you know how so many of us gather this day longing for salvation, hoping in your word, and because your truth is our heritage forever, let your word be unto us a delight, even the joy of our heart as you help us see our Savior, our precious Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are sometimes you you read stories and they just stick with you, or at least something from the story sticks with you. And I hope that many of you in here today have something like that. 
And one such story that has stuck with me for over 15 years now was something I read for the first time when Emily and I were engaged. She was finishing the final semester at university in Oklahoma. I was a youth pastor at a church here in North Texas. And so as these things often tend to go, when I was done at the church in the afternoon, several nights a week, I would come home to where I was living at the time. And I wouldn't have much else to do other than pull out a big book of history or biography. And I would just begin to read until I would fall asleep. And then the pattern would repeat the next day so often. And it was during this time that I had grabbed a, a, a recent biography of a pastor named Jonathan Edwards. And I began to read the story, and I knew uh, various parts of the outline of his life and ministry, but eventually I came across part of the story that in many ways is the only part that has stuck with me for over 15 years now. And it came in the spring of 1755. One of Edwards' children was named Jonathan Jr., he was nine years old. Jonathan Jr. wanted to be an evangelist. So what his parents decided to do was send Jonathan Jr. with a missionary named Gideon Hawley to preach the gospel hundreds of miles away to some Native American tribes. Now you can imagine, many of you who are parents of nine-year-olds or have had nine-year-olds in your house, what that feels like back then, let alone now, to send a child away, not at all being surprised if in coming months you would receive communication that would say the dangers of that trip meant now your child is dead. So on the 10th birthday of Jonathan Jr., uh, Papa Edwards wrote him a letter. And at the beginning of the letter, he talks about, Jonathan, even though you're away from us, do know you're always in our hearts, you're always in our minds, you're, you're always in our prayers. And then uh, Papa Edwards, he began to talk about just things going on in the local community. And he said, one of your old childhood friends, son, this boy named David, uh, David died earlier this week. And this is the part of the story that's always stuck with me. Just turned 10 years old, far away from his parents, in a place that it wouldn't be surprising if he died himself, Jonathan Jr. And his father said this, you see that they that are young die, as well as those that are old. David was not very much older than you, Remember what Christ said, that you must be born again, or you will never see the kingdom of God. Never give yourself any rest, Jonathan, until you have good evidence that you are converted and become a new creature. And certainly as a parent, I appreciate the simplicity of that intensity, the, the beauty of that urgency, which, as we're going to see, of course, in our text today, is nothing more than an intense simplicity, a beautiful urgency that came first from the lips of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he spent a night with Nicodemus. And you might know the chapter before us in John chapter 3, it's considered by many one of the most beautiful and one of the most pivotal passages of truth in all of the Bible. It's right to say that you could be a Christian a sincere Christian, and genuinely be ignorant of a lot of things in God's Word. I tend to think that it's almost impossible to be a genuine Christian and be ignorant of the things in texts before us in John chapter 3. To not know what it means to be born again. To not know what it means 
That salvation comes by faith alone. And so if you're in here today and maybe you wouldn't say that you are a Christian. Uh, Maybe you wonder about the Lord's work for sinners like you. Uh, Maybe you wonder how it is that sinners like you can have assurance of sin forgiven. Kind of the assurance of a promise of eternal life. Uh, How it is that you can lay hold of all of those rich things in the good news that we Christians call the gospel. How can you have hope in the midst of despair? How you can have life in the midst of death? How you can have faith in the midst of loss? Well, this is a text that gives us gospel answers to such questions and good news, uh, assurance. Uh, If you were with us last week, we left off with Jesus in Jerusalem. Uh, Kids, I hope you remember what he did when he came to Jerusalem. He he cleansed the temple. He took a whip. You might remember he drove out the money changers. He drove out the merchants. He was irate. He was righteously angry that these leaders in Israel, they had turned the Lord's house, which is to be a house of of prayer, into a house of exorbitant profiteering. And the text went on to say that after Jesus declared the sign of a coming resurrection, because the Jewish leaders said, What sign do you have, Jesus, for doing what you just did? And you might remember he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up on the third day. That's my sign. And we're told at the end of chapter 2 that many people believed in the signs, other things even Jesus was doing in Jerusalem during that Passover week. And Jesus, though, didn't believe them because he didn't entrust himself to them. And if you just glance back to the end of chapter 2, you'll notice what we're told in the very final phrase, that Jesus himself knew what was in man. And our text begins, doesn't it? Notice, now there was a man. Jesus knows exactly what is in man. And in a way you may not have realized before, chapters 3 and 4 in John's gospel goes on to prove it in very different ways. Because in chapter 3, Jesus knows what a religious somebody named Nicodemus needs. And then in chapter 4, Jesus knows what a religious nobody, the woman at the well, she needs. And therefore, it should give us confidence today, shouldn't it? That, That we come to listen to God's word and he knows what we need. That he knows what, what you need. And the theme that I'm going to put before you today is simply what he says at the end of verse 7. You must be born again. We want to understand that in the fullness as best we can capture it this morning in the conversation that Jesus had that night with Nicodemus and a way to help you understand something about this new birth. I want to walk through our text with four simple words guiding our way. First, I want to show you the necessity. Then I want to show you the sovereignty. Then I want to show you the mystery Before finally, we get to the sufficiency. So the necessity of being born again. Well, notice again what we find out about Nicodemus in verse 1. He was a man of the Pharisees, and he was a ruler of the Jews. His name itself, Nicodemus, means something like victor over the people. And his, his name points children to the reality that he was a VIP in ancient Israel. He was a very important person. He's not just a Pharisee, so that was something like a a Jewish Puritan in the first century. To to talk about him as a ruler of the Jews, we know this from other gospel texts too, is that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, this elite group of 70 men who were like the Supreme Court in Israel. 
Further, you could only be on the Sanhedrin if you were very wealthy. Further, you could only be on the Sanhedrin, as even Nicodemus is soon going to say, if you're quite old. So we have this old, wealthy, religious man coming to Jesus. But if you skip down to verse 10, it's quite important to note for even how the conversation goes with Jesus. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? Significantly different from Jesus saying, aren't you a teacher in Israel? That's why it's probably right to understand that Nicodemus had something of an unusual eminence and influence as a teacher in Israel. And maybe it's because of that status that you'll notice verse 2 tells us that he comes to Jesus at night. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God and no one can do these things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. And you may have heard sermons before or studied this text before and wonder why it is that Nicodemus comes at night. Clearly, it's important to John that Nicodemus comes at night. He could have simply told us that Nicodemus came to Jesus. But it's important for us to know Nicodemus came at night. And often people have wondered if maybe it's just because he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be spotted uh, coming to the Savior late at night. He would have to answer for that to his other Sanhedrin brethren. And that might be possible. I tend to think it's more likely that John, as, as John so often does in his gospel, he's got a very clear spiritual reality he's trying to unfold. Because later on in this chapter, Jesus is going to speak about darkness. Just glance down to verse 19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people have loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I think he comes at night because he's in spiritual darkness. Nicodemus is in this moment, and he's coming to the light of the world. And he begins by asking, or really stating, something of kind of a customary Jewish kind introduction. Well, well, teacher, rabbi, we know that the Lord is with you. And if you notice verse 3, the the verb that starts there says, Jesus answers. And students, you might notice that Nicodemus didn't ask a question in verse 2. But Jesus answers Because he has the divine discernment to know that Nicodemus really is coming with questions. And don't you love how how Jesus, and he's this way with all of us, isn't he? He's direct. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's not passive anyway. He gets right to the point. Nicodemus giving some sort of like kind welcome. And Jesus says, truly, truly. What does he say? Notice verse 3. I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we have to try to understand how that simple statement would have shocked Nicodemus spiritually. And it's a simple way that we can begin to understand it if you actually accent the last part of the verse. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. For an ordinary Jew in the first century, their great aspiration, uh, their, their great expectation was that they would see God's kingdom. They knew their Old Testament well. They knew that a kingdom was coming, this full and final place where the Lord would reign, that he would reign by placing his Messiah on the throne. Great David's greater son would come and establish a kingdom of peace, of righteousness, and justice. And ordinary Jews at the time, uh, they knew that not everyone was going to see the kingdom, but they expected that pretty much every Jew would see the kingdom. The few that wouldn't would commit these heinous sins and these 
covenant breakings would belong to them. But what does Jesus say? Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, teacher of teachers, known among the known, unless you are born again, Nicodemus, you won't see God's kingdom. Uh, what is shocking the spiritual sensibilities of Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, your, your natural pedigree, it doesn't matter. Your, your, your famous performance, it doesn't matter. Who you are, Nicodemus, doesn't matter, and what you've done doesn't matter. And isn't that true for every one of you in here today? To see God's kingdom, which is synonymous, even in this passage, with receiving eternal life, who you are, a sinner, what you've done, sin, means what? You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. There's a divine necessity there, isn't there? You can see Nicodemus is rather confused. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I grew up in a household that had lots of books around. And one of the households of my youth, maybe it's like yours, you know, the TV was surrounded by these kind of built-in bookshelves. And there, there was a particular book on a particular shelf that for hundreds and hundreds of times I had seen and assumed what I knew would be on the inside. It didn't have a dust jacket. It simply said on the spine two words, born again. And uh, one day after hundreds and hundreds of times at seeing this thing, for whatever reason, that day I decided to pull it off the shelf and discover what was in it. And it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It was this memoir of a man named Chuck Colson who was a lackey of President Richard Nixon that had to do hard time for his political crimes. And it was the story of his conversion, his new birth, of him being born again. And as Jesus is speaking here about being born again, it's almost as though Nicodemus says, that's not what I expected to find in, in this house. That's not the conversation that I thought we were going to have. I mean, he's focused on the literal realities, isn't he? I mean, really? Me, an old man, jump back into my mother's belly and be born again? That doesn't make any sense. Well, Jesus says, notice verse 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter God's kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And you see in verse 5, it's using the language not of being born again as much as it's using the language of, of being born of water and the spirit. And for someone like Nicodemus, famous teacher of Israel, he should know exactly what that language refers to. It comes from the prophecy of a prophet named Ezekiel. You can find it later on today in chapter 36. And it's there that God is speaking through Ezekiel. He's speaking about this new covenant age that's coming. That it's there that the kingdom will finally dawn upon God's people. Uh, what does it mean for those that are going to see the kingdom? Well, you don't need to turn there, but let me just read three verses from verse 25 through 27 and see if you don't understand how this is the text to which Jesus has in the back of his mind when he says, you must be born of water and spirit. God says, quote, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. But to say that you must be born again, Nicodemus, is just saying, Nicodemus, you must be born of the spirit. You can't be born of the flesh because the flesh is sinful. The flesh is full of transgressions, but you must be born of the spirit is what he says. And thus, verse 7 ends this first section. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And even as you might leave here later on this morning, as so often happens, doesn't it? Uh, your mind begins to race about things you must do tomorrow. Things you must do this week. Things you must do by next Sunday. Uh, know that the Lord has placed before you the one thing that you must do. You must be born again. There's a necessity to being born again. But I want you to see now, secondly, the sovereignty. The sovereignty in being born again. Verse 8 says, the wind blows where it wishes. I was out with the kids uh, several weeks back at a soccer game, and as so often happens in a Texas spring, uh, the wind was whipping. And one of the younger children said after four or five hours of being out at the complex, I said, Dad, why does it have to be so windy? And the only answer that you can give to such a question is something like, well, the Lord said it should be windy today. Because isn't there few things in our life that better illustrate the Lord's sovereignty like wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. It's not like a fan at home children that you can press a button and automatically turns off. The wind does whatever the wind wishes. And the word here for wind is the exact same word for spirit in the original language. So it's not surprising that the Lord connects it to the spirit's sovereignty. Continue on to verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Understand again how this would have confronted Nicodemus in his spiritual sensibilities. He's lived his whole life presuming that his obedience to the Mosaic law will grant him entrance into the kingdom. And Jesus has just said, Nicodemus, you don't control entrance into that kingdom. The Spirit, sovereignly, majestically, gracefully, blows wherever he wants, comes to whoever he wants, Open the eyes of whomever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. Nicodemus, you're not in charge of your entrance into God's kingdom. To say you must be born of the Spirit is to bow before the Spirit's sovereignty. And just as sailors, those of you that maybe have gone sailing before, you perhaps know this intuitively, that whenever the wind comes, you, know, you make use of the wind. And it should be true of us that oh, whenever the Spirit comes, that we make use of the Spirit. Is it not true that the Spirit ordinarily comes through the reading and the preaching of God's Word? That in ways, of course, you might not be able to feel physically, but I trust you might feel spiritually the wind of the Spirit is blowing, even right now through pages like John chapter 3. And he means for you to, to make use of it. 
Nicodemus says, verse 9, how can these things be? Which takes us from the sovereignty to our third section, which is the mystery. How can these things be? And Jesus answers with his kind of own exasperation in the conversation. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and and you don't understand these things? Nicodemus, you of all people, you should know this. This shouldn't be surprising to you. This shouldn't be foreign to you. This shouldn't be mysterious to you. How do you not know this? Uh, Students, you might meet, perhaps when you go to college or university, you might meet brilliant professors that have spent decades and decades learning many, many things. But you can learn everything about a particular subject and not learn what it means that you must be born again. And all this other learning is for loss. Many of you students have spent, haven't you, the last few semesters of this year, learning many things in the fall semester, in the spring semester. But if you haven't learned, you must be born again. You haven't learned what is the most essential matter of which the Lord speaks. And so he goes on to say, notice verse 11 and 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? For many, there's a mystery to this divine summons of you must be born again. Which even the conversation there about heavenly things takes us to the fourth and final section, which is the sufficiency. I mean, I have a friend who, uh, like many pastors in our circles, you know, they they love to read books from old pastors. And his particular favorite is an old pastor named Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs was this old English pastor that had a wonderful nickname. He was variously called either the heavenly doctor or the heavenly dropper. It's like whatever you were around him, his living and his preaching, it was just like heaven came to you. And that has to be true of Jesus there in Jerusalem. That wherever he went, whatever he said, there was almost this sense of of heaven has come down to earth. He keeps speaking about heavenly things. And we need to know why he keeps speaking about heavenly things. Because if you go back to verse 3, you might have a Bible that's like mine, and when it uses the language of born again, you might have a footnote that simply says at the bottom of the page, that could also be translated, born from above. Actually, later on in John chapter 3, the same word is translated from above. It's clear that Nicodemus understands what Jesus is saying as born again. But I think it's actually quite clear in context and these aren't competing with each other, that Jesus says you must be born from above. Because, of course, you can only be born again as you are born from above. You, you can only be born again as the heavenly spirit regenerates you. And what even gives Jesus the right to speak about heavenly things, like being born from above? Look at verse 13. He establishes credentials there with Nicodemus by saying, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, he who is with God in all eternity past in heaven, he who has come down to earth from heaven, is the teacher that can talk about heavenly things. And it's almost like that just mention of Jesus' favorite self-description, Son of Man. 
uh, leads him to help us understand how it is that anybody can be born again. Look at verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus says, So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Kids, I wonder if you know the story that he mentions there about Moses and snakes in the Old Testament. And it comes from Numbers chapter 21. And as so often happens in the Old Testament, Israel's grumbling, Israel's complaining. They want to go back to Egypt because things are so bad in the wilderness. So God in his discipline and his judgment, he sends poisonous snakes to bite his people that they would die of the venom. Moses intercedes. And what God tells Moses to do, take a bronze serpent. So basically a snake statue. Put it on a pole. And anyone who looks at the snake will live. And you have to picture the scene that's not necessarily captured there in Numbers 21. You have all these people surely writhing in pain and agony. They've just been bitten by a snake. They know they're getting ready to die. And the Lord says, you don't have to do anything. Just look over there. And spiritually speaking, that's true of people like you. Writhing in the pain and agony of sin. That will soon consume you unto eternal death. And what does Jesus say? You must be born again. How does that happen? You don't have to do anything. Because it doesn't depend on who you are. Because it doesn't depend on what you've done. Just look over there. There's sufficiency, isn't there? In Jesus Christ who says you must be born again. One of these other stories that has stuck with me comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. There's this young girl in the book named Jill. Uh, She's transported to the magical land. And due to her pride and arrogance, she had, at one point in the story, she finds herself in this strange forest. And quite quickly, uh, she becomes incredibly thirsty. She, she realizes she's going to die if she doesn't get some water. So she hears a stream rippling off in the distance, and eventually she comes to the stream. At long last, there's water right there. But then as she looks closer... Uh, she realizes that there's this giant lion laying next to the stream, a lion named Aslan. And there's a long conversation that ensues between the two of them. And it's quite instructive even for our text today because he says, aren't you thirsty? She says, oh, I'm dying of thirst. So he's inviting her to come drink of the water. And as they're talking back and forth, at one point she says, do you promise not to hurt me? If I come and drink the water. And Aslan says, I make no such promise. And she says, well, do you eat little girls? And he says, I've eaten plenty of little girls. Boys, empires, kingdoms, and realms. And she says, I guess I'm going to go find another stream. And he says, there is no other stream. So come and drink. There's a way in which this text unfolds for us, doesn't it? What we might speak of as divine duties or majestic mandates. Because there are two places in this text that I want to fix your attention on here at the end. Where Jesus uses the word must. One must has to do with him. One must has to do with you. 
And it's telling us there's no other option. There's no other way. There's no other stream for life. First must belongs to him. Jesus Christ must be lifted up. You see that again, verse 14. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And maybe you know the Bible story well enough to know what it meant that Jesus must be lifted up. That, that he was going to die in the place of sinners. That he was going to become uh, the, the curse for covenant breakers. So horrible was the prospect on the night when Jesus betrayed about being lifted up. Do you remember what he asked of God? Father, if there's any other way, take the cup from me. Now what does the Father say? There's no other way. You must be lifted up. And in the fullness of love and tenderness and compassion and eternal kindness, he gets up. And he goes, because he must be lifted up for people like you to see the kingdom, for people like you to receive eternal life. And in his must informs ours, doesn't it? He must be lifted up. So you'll notice it simply tells us in the text, doesn't it? You must look up. Verse 7 again, don't marvel at what I say to you. You must be born again. You connect that to verse 15. What does it mean? You believe in him, the Savior who is lifted up for eternal life. You might be like Nicodemus. You know your Bible really well, you know your theology. Really well. You have nothing but impeccable religious performance. A natural, impressive pedigree. But like Nicodemus, you haven't yet looked up. And if you know anything about Nicodemus' story, by the end of this gospel, what we find out after Jesus' death and resurrection, is Nicodemus, somewhere along the way, in the intervening three years, he looked up. But I do pray today that it doesn't take you three years to look up. You must be born again. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that in your sufficiency, your mercy, Revealed to us in Christ Jesus, we can have new life. That we can have new hopes. Lord, that we can have new desires and new ambitions. That you can give us a new future. As you give us a new heart. Bring that new creation power even into our lives this day through your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.